Numbers 20, 1 to 13. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, You will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah where the in them. Thanks, Fran. That all sounds terribly unfamiliar, doesn't it? Nothing like that's ever happened before. Right, I read a story this week of a young man called Bill. Bill had wild hair, wore a t-shirt with holes in it, black ripped jeans, and a big earring. He became a Christian while he was at university. Across the street from the campus was a church, the members of which were well-dressed and very conservative. One day, Bill decided to visit the church. So he walks in wearing his ripped jeans, his t-shirt, his wild hair, and his big earring, and starts down the aisle looking for a place to sit. The church is complete. No one thing. Can't find. Bill gets closer and closer to the pulpit. And when he realized there were no seats left, he just sat down on the carpet. By now, everyone was really uptight. Tension filling the air. Then from the back of the church, one of the church wardens slowly made his way towards Bill. This man was in his 80s, had silver gray hair, a three-piece suit and a pocket watch. He was a godly man, very elegant, very dignified, very courtly. It took a long time for him to get down the aisle. All eyes focused on him, the church utterly silent. The vicar can't begin preaching until the warden does what he has to do. When he reaches the front, the congregation watched as he, with great difficulty, lowered himself and sat down next to Bill so he wouldn't be alone. When the vicar gained control of himself and began his sermon, he said, what I'm about to preach, you will never remember. What you have just seen, you will never forget. That's the lesson that Moses had yet to learn. Probably the last lesson he had to learn in leadership. And 
lesson that he failed with, and they had enormous consequences, people to lead. They had not shown him respect or supported him. They had grumbled and complained, and he was an old man. He was 80 years old when he returned to Egypt to demand their release. But now, at 120 years old, God had one more thing to teach him. That what the people saw him do was more important than what they heard him say. Now, we'll come back to our story in a minute. But let's first get ourselves orientated in numbers because we've missed out a vast amount of history. So two weeks ago when Mark preached, Israel had reached the edge of the promised land. They'd been in the desert less than two years and their journey was just about over. But instead they refused to go in and so God led them back into the desert with the warning that they would walk around until all the adults who'd come out of Egypt were dead. So where are we now? That was chapter uh, 14. Well, we've moved on from there with a stop at 16 and 17 last week. We skipped 15, 18 and 19, which are just supplementary rules, to arrive in chapter 20 this week. Well, between Mark's sermon two weeks ago and this passage tonight, we've covered 38 years. The rebellion by the Jordan occurred partway through their second year out of Egypt, and here we find ourselves at the beginning of their 40th year. So we imagine the book of Numbers tells us all about the 40 years they spend wandering the desert. It tells us nothing about 38 years. In reality, we've only got two events recorded from the vast majority of their wanderings, and one of them takes a few verses. This story marks the beginning of what will be the last section in Numbers. From here, it will take about 11 months to reach the edge of the promised land again. The vast majority of those who were refused entry have died. And in chapter 27 months, we will see the deaths of both Miriam and Aaron. And Moses will die 11 Israel later. We're thinking about the next generation. These were the children who came out of Egypt. So I think we need to bear in mind that anything they know of Egypt is through their parents. And it's clear that they have a distorted view of what life was like. But that's not surprising, remembering in there were talking by the time they'd got to the edge of the promised land for the first time. This new generation have not been taught history well. And as we'll see they're not being taught about God well. There are two things, I think, going on in this passage. One is much more significant than the other. One leads to an outpouring of grace, one to forceful judgment. So what is going on with the people? Well, here we are again. The people gather in opposition to Moses and Aaron and complain. Not a great trait for them to have picked up from their parents. They also don't seem to have learnt any compassion or care for their leader either. Moses and Aaron's sister, Miriam, has just died. But they have an issue that they need dealing with and they want it sorted, regardless of what is going on in Moses and Aaron's family. They see Moses and Aaron simply as figureheads and people to moan at when things get tough. They seem to have no understanding that these men are real people with real families, 
and real struggles and grief, just like everyone else. The complaint focuses around the lack of water, but the root of the moaning is the same old story. Moses and Aaron are blamed for bringing them up out of Egypt. But now there's, there's a bit of a hint that they blame Moses and Aaron for the time they've spent or grow out in the, in the wilderness. What an odd list of things to feel you needed. But if we were to look back to chapter 13, verse 23, we hear brought back from Canaan. They cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. In reality, the people are blaming Moses and Aaron because the wilderness is not like the promised land they refused to enter. Their parents had seen God provide time and time again in the early years. And in Exodus, we're told that they ate manna until they entered the promised land, which means that God provided for them every single day for 40 years. These people should have had no excuse for doubting that God could provide water for them. Now, they don't actually express that doubt, but they don't presume God will provide. They don't ask God, ask Moses to go and ask God for help. I wonder how many of those who'd been born in the wilderness actually knew that manna appearing on the ground every morning was a miracle and not just something that happens in the desert. How many of them had never been told that God was their rescuer, God was their provider, and their parents had failed them on the banks of the Jordan? God has been at work for his people every day for 40 years, but they don't ask him to solve their problem. They just complain that there is one and shift the blame to someone else. These people should have been in the wilderness because of God's rebellion and recognizing that there will be punishment for rebellion. They have seen that happen. I think it's important that we realize that the 40 years wandering in the wilderness wasn't the punishment. It was the consequence. The punishment was the denial of entry into the promised land. A question we all frequently ask is, if God is able to supply our needs which we believe, why doesn't he just keep us out of difficulty in the first place? What the history of Israel shows us is that sometimes, and I'm not saying always, but sometimes the struggles we face are of our own doing. I talked last week about the times we make a wrong choice and head down a dead-end road. The difficulties we face on that road should not always be seen as punishment from God, just the inevitable consequence of our actions. We ignore God and go the way he doesn't want us to, but then we suffer for that choice and ask, why hasn't God protected me from this suffering? That's what Israel are really saying. Why are we stuck here? Why hasn't God brought us to a place where there is water and grapes and pomegranates and figs? Well, he did, but they didn't want it. Now, this story doesn't follow the usual pattern for these complaints. Usually what happens is the people moan, complain, say they want to go back to Egypt because it was heavenly there. God decides he's had enough of their constant grumbling and sends some form of punishment into the camp, a plague, or fire. 
big hole in the floor. The people cry out and Moses pleads with God to show mercy. God relents and everyone realizes just how powerful and fearful God is until they've got something else to complain about. But here we just have the people moaning, Moses falling face down and God sorting the problem out. Now, some commentators think that this is po- it's possible that the detail about whatever went on, else went on in the camp isn't there, not because it didn't actually happen, but because, A, by now we should take it as read because the pattern is fairly set, and B, because the complaint of the people isn't actually the focus of the story. This isn't actually another story about the people complaining. We'll get another one of those next week. This is a story about Moses and his that pick fall. But before we look at what Moses does, Exodus, and if you've got back a Bible handy, um, uh, you might want to turn to Exodus chapter 17, because there we'll see a very similar story with a very different outcome. Exodus chapter 17 from verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, not Zin, they are two deserts, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring, up out of it, bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? They've only just left, by the way. This is within months of leaving. Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? It's ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Same complaint, nearly the same solution, but some subtle and very important differences. In Exodus 17, God tells Moses to take his staff, the one that was used to strike the Nile, and uh, turn it to blood in the first plague. The one he also held over the Red Sea so that the people could cross through it. Take his staff and strike the rod, the rock. And he's to do this in front of some of the elders. And when he does, water will flow. Calls the place Massa and Meribah, which means testing and quarreling. For the elders, the leaders of the people, this was a reminder of God's power. The same power that had brought plagues to Egypt, that had rescued them through the Red Sea, would now provide for them in the wilderness. This was an encouragement, a promise, a secure foundation for them to stand on through the months that would lie ahead. Now let's turn back to Numbers 20, verse 6. Moses and Aaron went up from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. Notice God tells Moses to take the staff, 
not your staff. And it also says in the verse that comes after this that Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence. So lots of commentators think that God meant Aaron's staff, which had been placed in front of the ark, the one that we heard about last week that had budded, that had been placed there as a sign to the rebellious. And notice too that Moses is told not to strike the rock, but to speak to it. And he's to do it in front of all the people. This is not just about a reminder of God's rescue of his people or a promise of provision. It's a reminder of God's authority and of the consequences of rebelling against that authority. Incredible blessing because of it. God is giving this new generation the opportunity to be different, to start their life in the promised land on the right footing. If they'd been taught correctly in the wilderness, they would have seen the similarities between this and the previous event and realized that God had been true to his word. He had provided for them as they wandered. And that would have given them the secure foundation they would need as they crossed the Jordan to begin their new lives. So what does Moses do? Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? His arm struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. I think it's important that we notice that it says he took the staff just as he commanded him. Because I think this, di- this detail highlights the fact that from here, it just all goes downhill. He took the staff like he was supposed to. He gathered the people like he was supposed to. But then instead of addressing the rock, he turns to the people and says, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of the... And then he turned and struck the rock. Not once, but twice. Now, I'm going to come back to the water flowing in a minute because I want to concentrate on Moses. While the people are quenching their thirst, God tells Moses and Aaron of his decision. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Now that is pretty harsh treatment. Moses makes one little mistake and loses out on seeing the promised land. Aaron doesn't even open his mouth and gets the same punishment. God has shown mercy and those rebellious people for time and time. So why? Moses slips up one horsey. Some think that he's punished because he lets his anger and his frustration with the people get the better of him. I really hope that's not the case because if it is, I am in big trouble. Some think he's punished because he doesn't follow God's instructions properly. Again, I hope that's not true. Others think it's because he allowed his personal life, his grief over the death of Miriam, to affect his role of leader of the people. I really hope that's not true. Yes, there are times we have to put stuff in a box and get on with the work at hand. But I really hope that if I slip in times of grief or struggle and let the pain I'm going through affect what I'm doing for God, he won't punish me for it. Because that doesn't sound like a compassionate, loving father to me. To be honest, I don't really understand why I've managed to read so many explanations for Moses' punishment. It's right there in the passage. Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. How do we know Moses didn't trust God? He didn't say it. 
He didn't outwardly question God's ability to provide. But he did turn and strike the rock twice. Even when God told him to strike the rock in Exodus, he only had to do it once. Moses' actions demonstrates to the people what is really going on in his head. And one thing that is going on is that he wants to make really sure that this miracle is going to happen. Which sounds a little bit like a lack of trust. What about not honoring God? He wasn't actually told to, was he? God just said, speak to the rock and I'll do the rest. The problem isn't actually about what Moses didn't do. It's when he did God has an issue with. Jeff Lucas is a, um, a preacher. He kind of works between the UK and, um, and the US um, and is involved with Spring Harvest and preaches a lot in their big tent. And this is kind of how he fell into the same trap as Moses. I spoke one evening in the big top. It went well. Actually, it went very well. The content seemed to hit the mark. The presentation flowed and the crowd laughed at all the funny stories. It was, as they say, a result. The next day, I strolled towards the team lounge for my morning dose of caffeine and began to notice that I was being noticed. People nudged each other as I walked by. Some smiled and said good morning and others whispered, it's him, you know, from last night. I downed my coffee and wandered over to the bookshop. I had a few minutes to spare and planned a quiet, leisurely browse. But as I walked to the book area, I had to pass the booth where cassette recordings, shows you how old it was, how cassette recordings of all the meetings were sold. A large sign was hanging up which said, Jeff Lucas, big top last night, available here. Quite a number of people had gathered under the sign and were apparently ordering copies of my sermon. I headed out struggling with a rising feeling of self-congratulation and then it happened. A guest blocked my pathway, waved a copy of one of my books under my nose and asked if I would mind signing it for him. No, no, no. Oh, go on then. And what write a verse of scripture? For the rest of the day, I found myself unable to navigate my way around the site without being asked for my signature. At first, modesty insisted that I feel rather embarrassed by it. But before long, I found myself walking more slowly, just willing someone to pounce on me so that I could graciously bestow my signature upon them. I was getting to the point where I was feeling the need to have pen in hand ever at the ready so that I could more conveniently bless the ever-increasing members of my adoring public. I was famous. Hooray, this was really rather pleasant. Late in the afternoon, my right hand somewhat aching from scrawling a series of messages again, a voice of God in my heart. And this time he asked yet another question, exocet-like in its devastation, blowing my pathetic posturing apart in a second. So, famous in Butlins for a day, are we? See, Moses, like Jeff Lucas, had begun to believe his own hype. Moses should have been preparing to take these people back to new generation into the promised land. He should have been using every opportunity to correct the bad teaching they'd had from their parents, to fill in slavers in the stories, to remind the people who had been with them every step of the way in the desert, who has provided for them each and every day despite their ingratitude and constant moaning. But what did the people learn from this event? They learned that Moses has great power. They learned that Moses is the one who will provide for them. God was not given any of the glory, never mind all of it. 
While we don't hear anything from Aaron, we must assume that his heart was betraying the same belief. God knew what Aaron was really thinking. The way they handle this latest complaint sounds very much like when the people come to Moses moaning about the manna they've been eating for months. God goes, Moses goes to God and cries, Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms to the land you promised? Must we bring water out of this rock? What Moses had forgotten was that God wasn't giving him the ability to provide for the people. He was giving Moses the opportunity to honor God and remember that he had saved them. If Moses and Aaron had taken the people into the land, who would they have remembered as their rescuer? Moses might have told them time and time again that the Lord had saved them, but his actions here at the rock showed them that Moses had done it. These people needed to be told the truth so that they could enter the promised land knowing who God was, knowing what he'd done, learning the lessons from history, and not destined to make the same mistakes as their parents and grandparents. Moses and Aaron missed out on the blessing because they failed to honor God and they failed the people. There's a warning here for all of us. Whatever our area of service, particularly where it's something obvious like preaching or leading or in the worship group. However, remember we heard from Paul last week when he said, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. This is a warning for everyone. Who are you bringing glory to? Some of you will have heard me say this before, but when I was training as a reader, I had to do a placement in another church, one where I had to preach from the pulpit. Now, that really isn't my comfort zone. But the time I spent in that pulpit had quite a profound effect on me and perhaps tempered the pride that I was beginning to struggle with as I fell more and more in love with preaching. Because inside that pulpit, but only the preacher to see was a verse from John 12, John 12, 21. Whatever we so they said, we would like to see, whether it's We all need to remember that verse. So we would like to see Jesus. The people of Israel didn't hear God through Moses at that rock. They didn't see him either. They only saw Moses. Do people see God in what you're doing? Moses learned his lesson the hard way. Over the past few years, we've seen too many Christian leaders, particularly those with so-called celebrity status, fall from incredible heights, often because they've begun to believe their own hype and their need for fame and the attention of others has overridden their desire for the truth of the gospel. We need to be careful that we don't slip in the same way and allow our need for recognition and the respect of others override our desire for God's glory. However, yet again, in the midst of rebellion and complaining, in the middle of immense failure of his, his chosen leader, we see just how gracious and generous our God really is. When Moses gets it completely wrong at the rock and does almost the opposite of what God told him to do, God still provides for his people. Water doesn't just flow out of this rock. It doesn't even pour out of this rock. It gushes out of this rock. God's provision, even in the failings of his people, is bountiful and generous. And that is such an encouragement. Because we will fail. We will all fail. Whether it's in leadership or in service, we will fail. 
But God's grace to his people is boundless and abundant. And it's that grace that we are going to remember in a minute as we come to share in communion. Grace that poured out even his only son for the sake of rebellious, sinful people. So let's pray and then we'll in together. Father, we know that we fail. We know that we don't do things the way you've told us to. We know that sometimes... Often we take the glory for ourselves, But Father, we pray that you would change our hearts, that we would be people who glorify you, who seek only to show people you. People who remember that verse. Sir, they said, we want to see Jesus. Amen.